0: Welcome to the Bill Kelly Podcast. I'm Bill Kelly. Well, a new study from McMaster University is revealing how Canadians truly feel about the trucker convoy and the anti-vaccine movement. Clifton van der Linden, who is the director of Digital Society Lab at McMaster, joins us to talk about this. What does the state of the Conservative Party look like these days? Who's in? Who's out of the leadership race? We'll talk about that. And the mainstream media has been receiving cruel and bitter criticism from protesters over the last couple of weeks. Where does all this vitriol come from? It's all coming up in the Bill Kelly Podcast, and it starts now. Today on the Bill Kelly Show on 900 CHML. So uh, the protest uh, in Windsor, uh, of course, the one in Alberta is still going on, and we've been concentrating an awful lot of our energies and uh, focus on what's happening in Ottawa, and uh, not just politically, but of course uh, on the streets of Ottawa uh, with the protest. But if one of the stated goals of the protest is to win the hearts and minds of the Canadian public on this, how are they doing? Uh, well, some folks have looked into this, and there's an interesting study that uh, that I read last night. It's on theconversation.com. Uh, it's called The Majority of Canadians Disagree with the Freedom Convoy on Vaccine Mandates and Lockdowns. Uh, one of the authors of this piece is uh, joining us right now. Uh, he is uh, Clifton Vanderlyn, who is an assistant professor of political science and the director of Digital Society Lab at McMaster University in Hamilton. Uh, professor, pleasure to have you on the program. Thanks so much for the time today.
1: Oh, thanks for having me, Bill.
0: Let's, let's talk a little bit about about the research and 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 how we went about this. and I, I guess it's something that we always wonder about here. I know you know COVID fatigue, I think is is spread right across the country and it's spreading almost on a daily basis. Uh, and and that may be part of the of, of what's driving this thing that's going on with some of the uh, the demonstrations we've seen over the last couple of days. But how are Canadians feeling about it?
1: So the way that we try to tap into sentiment around um, vaccine mandates, passports, uh, 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 COVID-19 restrictions is through an instrument called the COVID-19 Monitor. And it's an ongoing study of of public opinion in Canada uh, uh, relating to the pandemic and pandemic-related policies. We started it in March 2020, uh, shortly after the first restrictions were announced, and we've been running a monthly survey uh, since then. Uh, So we have the ability both to look at what's going on in the here and now and how that compares to how attitudes have shifted uh, across the course of the pandemic. So the last uh, survey that we ran was in um, early January. We we actually have a survey in the field right now because we run at the beginning of every month. But as of early January, we saw that um, given the circumstances at the time, and remember, this is at the height of uh, uh, the Omicron uh, variant uh, and its and it spread. Um, most Canadians were willing to accept uh, most of the restrictions that were imposed um, on them in order to try to control the spread of transmission. They were also, you know, a, a majority of Canadians were certainly in favour or certainly seem in favour of some form of vaccine mandates for certain segments of the population. And most of them supported vaccine passports for most for most activities now this is I should say Bill that this is not a commentary on government policy and it's not a commentary Mm -hmm. on the views of the convoy it's simply asking the question when when people say that the views of of the the protesters in Ottawa and elsewhere uh, reflect the majority of Canadians when we test that against empirical evidence using public opinion research uh, um, the evidence just doesn't support that claim.
0: How has this changed? You've been doing this for quite some time, as you mentioned, and and circumstances have changed. I mean, you know, when you started doing this, there was well, there was no vaccine mandate uh, because we we didn't know what vaccines were going to be like, when they were going to be available, and how how available they would be. So Canadians have had to, to alter their opinions and pivot a little bit too, uh, and and you know, some people have said, well, you know, the government's just piling stuff on, one you know mandate after another, and one more restriction. That, that's we're hearing from some of the protesters these days, but I'm getting the sense, though, from from the data that, uh, that I saw in the piece last night is that by and large, yeah, we may grumble a little bit about it, but we understand that it's for the common good and we pretty much accept it.
1: I think that's a I think that's an accurate reading of what we're seeing in these findings. And I don't want to say that Canadians are happy with these restrictions. I mean, we ask people about their mental health and self-reported levels of mental health are the lowest they've been in the pandemic. People are not satisfied with uh, the way that the government has acted or intervened in many cases. Satisfaction with our uh, premiers and and prime minister are are low. Uh, um, uh, So these things are you know, th- there's not the suggestion here that Canadians are saying, you know, give me more restrictions. This is what I want. Uh, they're tired of it. They're exhausted. As you've mentioned, COVID fatigue is certainly something that we're seeing in or or, or indicators of COVID f- fatigue or something that we're seeing in the, in the uh, findings from these studies. Um, but as you said, if the circumstances call for it, uh, Canadians are still willing to do what needs to be done to try to uh, nip this thing in the bud.
0: And, and that's an important distinction, I think, to make here, because, I, I, you know, I don't want people to go away thinking, oh, what a ridiculous report. You know, we're not happy about this. You know, nobody says they are. Uh, but it, and you've broken this down even in, into uh, much more detailed situations about, for instance, uh, you know, restrict, uh, long-term care facilities. What about in restaurants and things of this nature? Uh, and as you say, the support seems to be there to say, yeah, it's the right thing to do. You know, but we're not crazy about having to do it, but I guess we're going to have to do this. Uh, but they certainly seem to be front and center concerned uh, with their responses about public health and about the impact of not doing these sorts of things. And, and I guess the spread and, and the number of variants that we've dealt with, uh, I would think have had an impact on Canadians' opinions.
1: Yeah, and I would agree with you, Bill. I think that's uh, that's correct. I think it, what you also see in the findings, and, you, you know, you're right, we've, we've not just asked general questions like, do you agree with... um um you know, all government restrictions, we've asked what kind of government restrictions do you agree with uh, and under what circumstances? And you definitely see variance there. There are certain areas where Canadians are no longer willing to accept uh, the, the kinds of restrictions that we accepted at the beginning of the pandemic. And those tend to be in, in terms of outdoor activities. Um, yeah. At the beginning of the pandemic, playgrounds were shut down, parks were shut down in many in many provinces. Um, and there were, you know, there were talks about you know, potential curfews or would we need to have curfews? Those are things that Canadians no longer seem willing to to tolerate. They think, you know, we've had enough of that. But in terms of uh, things like international travel, restrictions on bars and nightclubs, certainly restrictions on access to nursing homes during, um, you know, peaks in, 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 in hospitalizations and transmission rates, these are places where Canadians are still willing to say if the circumstances call for it, we're willing to do what needs to be done.
0: And we, I've seen that reflected, and that's why I was so interested in, in the, uh, the work that you've done on this. 90% of the people were supportive of the idea of, of uh, having vaccine passports, for instance, as you mentioned, for air travel, certainly for cruise ships. And when you get into things like movie theaters and restaurants, the the support dies, it's it's still there, but it's not nearly as, as extensive, I guess, as for some of the other things, which kind of says, hey, cut kind us of some slack here, which I think is something that we've heard uh, time and time again from for the last little while to say to the governments, we, we understand what you want to do here, but, you know, I want to go to a movie or, hey, I want to go to a ball game, for heaven's sakes, or a, a hockey game, for heaven's sakes, whatever the case might be in situations like that. So. We're we're upset about this. We're tired of this, but at the same time, I think we're still wary of the impact that this uh, pandemic and another wave could have if we let our guard down.
1: I think that's right. And again, I we, we need to take these findings in the context in which they were run. Uh, you know, I'm not saying that that. Uh, Omicron has run its course, but certainly we're seeing um, fewer hospitalizations. Uh, and I think you're seeing the government start to send sig- governments, uh, provincial and federal, start to send signals that there will be the uh, loosening of, of restrictions. And I'm sure, you know, when we get the results of um, the, the, the survey that's in the field this week, when we ask these same questions to a representative sample of Canadians, my hypothesis is you'll see less uh, tolerance for um, for some of these restrictions, because the situation is different. Like you said, it's it's not the situation that we had in early January. But, you know, I, I've got uh, more than a decade of experience doing public opinion research studies. And I would say that opinion generally doesn't shift so much that, uh, that I would expect to see suddenly the majority uh, being against um, uh, all restrictions in principle. I think, again, it's Canadians want to see reasoned judgment, that looks at the context and makes smart decisions based on the context that we're in.
0: And and there are levels of support, as you mentioned in the piece here, and, and one of the more contentious uh, topics, of course, when it came to uh, to interventions and things of this nature, were, we're well, schools and daycare centers, uh, you know, should we close the schools, should we open them? That debate seems to start after every break, whether it was uh, September or, of course, after the Christmas break, whatever the case might be. And, uh, and your data here suggests that uh, there is still majority support, about 66% of Canadians strongly or somewhat agree. So it's, it's not as if we're overwhelming, but, I mean, yeah, we, it's probably the best thing to do, uh, which I guess might just embolden some of the politicians who are getting a lot of heat for these things to say that, by and large, uh, there's still agreement on this. But I, I see your point here that, uh, you know, the longer this goes on and when we start to see some of the numbers that worry us start to decrease, uh, you know, like you say, hospitalizations and things of this nature, we're going to be looking for some relief here, aren't we?
1: I, I think that's right. And the, the, the key thing to keep in mind about the schools and daycares is that the question that we ask Canadians is: How supportive are you of you are uh, How supportive are you of the government imposing restrictions on schools and daycares? Given present circumstances and present circumstances at the time were uh, you know um, the, the peak of of uh, Omicron. So uh, again, if we ask that question, we are asking that question again right now to Canadians a month later, and I guess we'll see how how positions shift. But of course, in Ontario and elsewhere, schools and and daycares were effectively closed um, at the at the time that this survey was run, and I think what this says is, in hindsight, um, a majority of Canadians agreed with that measure given where we were at the time. This is
0: this. This data is going to be very instructive, I think, for politicians going forward if they want to start developing policies and, hey, you know, what are the next steps? And I know that that our provincial government uh, and various other provincial governments, of course, have tried to indicate a timeline uh, when things are going on. And, and the, the data that you're suggesting here and, and that you've accumulated uh, pretty much jives with that to suggest that, you know, we, we want to see, you know, progression here and, and to have these things released. And, and, you know, we don't want you to go back too far. I know that There was a debate a couple of weeks ago here about whether, you know, when Omicron started to go up again and we were concerned about yet another spike, about perhaps, uh, you know, vaccine passports for things like grocery stores and shopping centers. And uh, that was a pretty rough debate for the longest time, too. You've dealt with that in this and and found out that there wasn't much support for that in the the broader population.
1: That's right. Uh, So of all the restrictions that we asked about, or of all the activities um, that, Uh, canadians could participate in uh, that we asked about Uh, shopping at a grocery store received the lowest level of support for having to show um, some sort of proof of vaccination Um, so uh, to your point I think there was you know there may have been internal polling or perhaps uh, governments actually had the the right read of the room as to whether that should be a policy measure that they adopt and I think that um, given that given what we see in the data uh, there would have been you know significant blowback if, if that had been adopted.
0: Did you talk at all about masking? I mean, we've spent a lot of time here talking about vaccinations, which is very important, of course, because our our, our public health officials tell us that's that's the number one way for us to to combat this thing. But you know, one of the other uh, debatable points these days is is the COVID protocol, and and part of that, of course, is masking in grocery stores, in restaurants, and things of this nature. Are, are we still okay with that, or are we getting a little intolerant?
1: So masks actually receive, so we do ask about masks in, in the in the broader study. It wasn't reported in this particular article, but um, mm-hmm. I've reported it elsewhere. And masking actually receives more support in general than things like showing proof of vaccination. Um, so people are more are more opposed to the idea of vaccine passports than they are to the idea of wearing masks. And when we dig into that a little bit, there are people who disagree with mandating vaccines, but still think it's a reasonable precaution to wear a mask.
0: Interesting. Interesting. Uh- it's something that kind of got shoved off to of the side here, but still, we still anecdotally hear all sorts of information. I mean, I've, I've had people contact me over the last couple of weeks. Uh, that are still outraged if they go into a grocery store, for instance, and they see somebody shopping uh, without a mask. And, and it, you know, there's that crisis a, a controversy. Managers are approached and say, hey, why aren't you doing this? It's still a very contentious point, I think, with an awful lot of people, which indicates to me... Uh, that they are still very supportive and very passionate about this too, that said you know, that's one little thing, I guess, that we can do. And uh, the people that have contacted me and told me those stories are, are quite outraged that people would have, you know, the the, the audacity to simply say, I'm not going to do that.
1: Yeah. And, and I think that's that's reflected in in uh, the data that we've collected since mask mandates have been introduced, really. Um, it took a lot. It took a while. It wasn't an immediate spike in terms of support for masks. Uh, and I think as well, you I mean, you'll remember, Bill, that at the beginning of the uh, pandemic, there was some flip flopping in terms of public health guidance and advice yeah. around whether masks were necessary, what kind of masks. And, and that's still that's continued to be in sort of an evolving um, um, uh, discussion and, and, and policy measure uh, from whether we should wear masks to what type of masks. Um, but once, once we reached this sort of critical threshold in Canadian public opinion that masks were, um, uh, you know, uh, uh, contributed to uh the the collective um um prevention of of transmission uh then canadians really signed on there we we do we definitely see people in the data who are um vehemently against masks and see the masks as uh you know a, a symbol of oppression um but they are definitely a minority view and a, and, and a smaller minority than people who um are are uh, opposed to um uh other measures
0: when you look at the tracking for the time you started doing this, or right up until the most recent uh, publication, uh, do you s- sense that that we still have trust in in our medical professionals, the ones that we're taking guidance from and direction from about how to combat this thing? I mean, initially, uh, I, I noticed an awful lot of compliance. Some people get, we were scared. Let's face it, we didn't know what we were dealing with. We didn't know how extensive uh, COVID was, and we saw some horrific stories about the impact it could have and the people that were being hospitalized and dying from it. But I'm getting the sense that that we've kind of taken our foot off the gas a little bit now because we realize, hey, Omicron, it's yeah, it's bad, uh, but maybe not as bad. Uh, can we believe what our doctors and, and our our health experts are telling us about this? Uh, do you get any read there that 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 you know the level of support and the level of trust in that is waned at all?
1: So it's interesting because we actually run this study in five countries. We also run it in the U.S., the U.K., Australia, and New Zealand. And what we've noticed about Canada that makes it unique is the sort of robustness of uh, public trust in our public health institutions, not in our politicians, not in the media necessarily. Um, uh, there we see uh, um, fluctuating um, levels of support uh, and then levels of, of public trust. But in terms of our, in terms of Canadians' general levels of trust in their, in their doctors, their, their their healthcare providers, and in our public health institutions, those have remained relatively strong throughout the pandemic. And it's a different trend than we saw, for example, in the US, where they, they, they I mean, we, they didn't go into the pandemic with those levels of trust in their public health institutions. And they certainly saw a hit to that uh, sort of general public trust uh, through the pandemic. So we've seen some, uh, I, I will say we've seen some moderate decline uh over the course of the pandemic but it's really not it's really negligible and overall I would say that Canadians still have a great deal of trust in their in their public health professionals and in the public health institutions um in their provinces and in the country.
0: I think it's good that you had that other data to to compare and contrast with uh to get the readers to just how Canadians are feeling vis-a-vis other countries because I saw the same thing you're absolutely right uh, down in the States, those that did not trust uh, what was coming out, uh, they, they made those experts, uh, the, you know, the, the targets of their attacks, the, the Fauci's and other people like this were, were cri- not just criticized, uh, but verbally attacked oftentimes in the media uh, for, you know, misinformation, et cetera. We, I don't think we've gone that far. I mean, I, we've seen sporadic instances of it, but we seem to be much more accepting of the fact that, look, at these are the experts. And, uh, you know, we can choose to believe the advice or not, but we don't seem to make it as personal as as some other jurisdictions do until this weekend, maybe.
1: I think we see I think we see similar attacks, maybe on a smaller scale against our um, uh, public health uh, leaders. So, uh, Dr. Tam and provincial public health uh, leaders, We, we, we see them. As the target of some attacks, what we don't see as much, I think, as in the United States, is the are the institutions or the apparatus of of government actually turning on our public health institutions. So um, the, the attacks against Dr. Fauci are are from outside government, but also from within. Whereas yeah. it doesn't seem you don't get that sense uh, in in most Canadian contexts.
0: Uh, it's a fascinating study, and I'll direct our, our listeners once again: uh, theconversation dot com uh, slash majority of Canadians disagree with Freedom Convoy. Uh, it's an interesting read, and, and I think very enlightening in light of uh, some of the information, or maybe misinformation, that we're inundated with these days. It's always great to, to look at some of the hard numbers on this. Uh, Clifton, thank you so much for the great work that you and your team are doing, and thanks for spending some time with us today. Really appreciate it.
1: I appreciate you having me, Bill.
0: Take care. That's uh, Professor Clifton van der Linden, of course, the uh, Professor of Political Science and the director of the Digital Society Lab at Macassie University. And and as he mentioned, an ongoing process, and there will be more surveys, I guess, as this continues over the next uh, weeks, months, whatever it's going to be. And it's always interesting to get that read on just how we as Canadians are dealing with this, and and especially with some of the things that we're being asked to do in the next little while, and whether or not that is going to change dramatically. So far, though, it looks like Canadians are on side. As I mentioned at the beginning, we, we grumble about it, because we do that as Canadians, but we kind of finally just kind of shrug our shoulders and said, yeah, but if that's what we have to do, most of us see you know, the common sense view and carry on, and we're compliant with that. You're listening to The Bill Kelly Show podcast
2: on 900
0: CHML. I want to talk a little bit about the conservative leadership race. We know, of course, Aaron O'Toole is out. He got ousted by his own uh, caucus uh, just a few days ago. And uh, I was going to say the race is on. Technically, it's not yet. Uh, we know there's going to be a leadership race. Uh, Pierre Polyas uh, this past weekend uh, issued a, a brief uh, video indicating that he wants to be the prime minister. Uh, of course, the first step would be to become the leader of that political party, I guess. But uh, I'm sure that was his intention, although he didn't state that. Uh, but it raises an awful lot of questions about just where the Conservative Party is going to go. Um, let's face it, who they select uh, is going to go a long way towards people determining just what kind of party are, they are, what kind of ideals they, they support, and the direction in which they'd like to take the country. That, that happens. It happened when when Paul uh, Paul Martin became the Prime Minister uh, you know, from the Liberals. It happened when Stephen Harper became the Prime Minister from the Conservative side of things. And uh, they're hoping it's going to happen again. And uh, there are some other names that are being bandied about. But what about an outsider? What about somebody that doesn't have what some people might consider political baggage? It has happened before. Uh, Would it be the best possible solution for this conservative party that seems to be in some sense of disarray right now? I want to bring uh, Muhammad Ali into the conversation. Muhammad, of course, is a senior consultant with Crestview Strategies and always a welcome guest on our program. Muhammad, uh, thanks for jumping in. Really appreciate your time today.
3: Great. Thanks for having me.
0: I'm going to throw something at you right now. I'm sure, I don't know if you got a chance to see this on Twitter the other day. Uh, you know, we've talked about Pierre Pauliev as, as a potential for this, and, and some people already classify him as the front runner. There are other names uh, that are being bandied about I don't know how many are, are serious about it. But uh, ta- a, a tweet I got yesterday from Natasha uh, Carradine. Natasha, of course, is a uh, principal at Navigator. She's uh, been a political commentator for many, many years, and a guest on this program many times as well. Uh, and she uh, tweeted last night, in the past 48 hours, I have received many calls encouraging me to run for the leadership of the Conservative Party of Canada. I am humbled and honoured and feel a duty to take these inquiries seriously. Uh, and she goes on with some subsequent tweets to talk about her background, uh, that she was a member of the Young Conservative Party uh, back in the days of Brian Mulverney, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. But uh, by the way, we did reach out to her. She's tied up, but we're going to have her on in a future program to talk about her uh, ambitions here and what might be happening. But, let me throw that out to you mohammed in, to, with, with tasha specifically but even in a more general term an outsider is that an option that the conservatives might want to consider or do you have to go with somebody who's got that political experience
3: well i mean in in the you know when looking at tasha she had political experience she's been involved at you know senior staff levels uh in prior uh, governments um but i think what it comes down to whether you're an external candidate or an internal candidate, I don't think there is a, a real difference. It comes down to who can mobilize uh, the membership, who can sign up as many members as possible. It's often easier for those who are kind of in the inside and doing politics day to day. Someone like Tasha though has the flexibility as you know work in the consulting um, industry, has profiles, so she will have a little bit more of an easier time than say someone who's truly out of the unknown. Remember, Leslie Lewis came in a very competitive third, and she was an external candidate. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and, you know, depending on how, who you speak to, there was a legitimate reason she could have actually won or even came even second um, if, the, uh, if the current rules around the point system for the conservative leadership race had been in place. So, you know, I don't think um, folks are, are opposed, you know, in the conservative base uh, to an external candidate. I think comes down to who it is, can they mobilize, and what's their message.
0: And, and your point's well taken. I mean, in, in, in Tasha's case, uh, as you mentioned, uh, she was a member of the Young Conservative Party, but she did work, as you mentioned, in Ottawa uh, for Bob Layton, who was a Conservative MP, and for uh, Barbara McDougall and uh, Bernard Valcour, uh, both of the ministers, I guess, in, in the various uh, Conservative cabinets. So she knows the ropes clearly. But I mean, you know, it's 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 a different twist, though, to th- actually put your name up for election and and let the voters speak and uh, you know you're right she is not going to go into this as, a, as a, a shiny newbie that doesn't know anything about the system she works the system and knows the system very well so she's got that going for her uh and and your example of leslie lewis i think is is, is very apropos to this the discussion here uh, sometimes i think political parties when they're spinning their wheels just look for a fresh face a fresh idea and as you and I have talked about in the past, I mean, there's an argument to be made right now that maybe the Conservatives do need to think outside the box. I mean, this is what the third leader in the last seven years now uh, that, that they've had to select this. Uh, you know, are they doing something wrong? Is it, the, is it the quality of the candidates? They've got to be doing a lot of soul-searching these days.
3: Yeah, they, they definitely will. You know, they should be doing soul-searching. Any leadership review and an election, I think a party needs to do soul-searching to determine you know, what do we stand for? What's the next step? Are we just going to stick to our, uh, our, our you know, standard bearers of uh, the past, or are we going to look to someone new and to someone push us? And I think there was a, an attempt at doing that with Aaron O'Toole. Uh, you know, he, he tried to pull in a, a number of different factions, you know, but then you, you, you know, you have to be very careful with when you do that um, because you need to stand for something. And uh, I think the membership is open to, fresh ideas. You know, there are a number of people who want to get back into government. There are also those who just simply want to be able to have uh, the right person to speak to their issues and, and and to the idea of forming government is not really in their um, line of sight. So it, again, I think it really comes down to, you know, who, who has the message that can bring in the right membership vote? Because remember, it, this is not a general election. So When we look at it, we have to look at who actually comes out to a leadership contest. And again, it comes down to the memberships. It comes down to who pulls them out. Uh, And it comes down to what allegiances do you build with other folks uh, within the the party that are are high profile. And they could be coming from caucus. They can be coming from external. Um, You know, we've seen it before where Aaron O'Toole had the most caucus support in the 2017 race but didn't win. And then it changed. And Andrew Shearer had more. And then... So things can can shift, um, but it comes down to your your ability to mobilize.
0: I'm glad you talked about the process here because that's very important. I mean, and we've seen this happen with the last number of leadership races. Uh, long gone are the days, of course, where they have a convention in, in an arena someplace and, you know, they they all line up to vote and it takes two or three hours to count the votes and you see who's ahead or who has to drop off, et cetera. And there's a lot of backroom dealings going on. We've We've all seen that. We've covered it uh it's it's a different process now it's done electronically it's it's a uh, as you mentioned in some cases it's a scoring system as opposed to just counting the, the ballots here uh does that change the approach for the candidates right now Do, it, it's glad handing is not really the the essential part of the the process here uh you've got to reach a much broader uh, uh population base i guess within your own party uh to be able to get that kind of support it's it's a different ball game it
3: is a different ball game and i think um like i mentioned earlier you know if the system was different. There is some who believe that Les Lewis could have done better, um, because there is the requirement of, uh, you know, it's 100 points from each riding. But the new rule, as I understand it, is 100 people need to vote uh, in that riding for the 100 points to actually count. And so that was ways in which Aaron O'Toole and Andrew Scheer in the past were able to stack the deck a little bit more. Uh, when they could pull in some of those key key votes. Uh, and so it makes it a bit actually tougher for maybe even a Quebec uh, candidate who may rely on Quebec Conservative voters to, to help, you know, elevate them. And it gives a little bit more strength to those from the prairies where there's a huge and large base uh, of support um, or membership, really, uh, for the Conservatives. So uh, it, it really, I think, will change a bit of the strategy and how on these candidates, you know, what pro- issues do they prioritize? How do they, you know, uh, send out the message? Where do they spend more of their time signing up members? You know, there are, uh, at the end of the day, a need for, you know, if, if there's more candidates also, I think that changes the strategy as well. So there's, I think, a number of factors that need to kind of uh, unfold over the next several weeks, including what the uh, parameters of the leadership rates will be to determine how a candidate will strategize their next steps.
0: The base is important here. Uh, I was thinking back when I saw the story, when I, I saw the tweet from Tasha uh, about Brian Mulrooney, who we just talked about a couple of minutes ago, who became leader after Joe Clark. Uh, they were not enamored of Mr. Clark, of course. He was a prime minister for only a short period of time, nine months, I think it was. And and that was thinking outside the box. I mean, Brian Mulrooney was not devoid of, of political experience, but I mean, it was he was relatively new to that process at that level, but garnered that support. But those were different days. I mean, there was an awful lot of support for the Conservative Party in Quebec at that time. As a matter of fact, you could make an argument that that both Liberals and Conservatives uh, had this, the foundation for their political parties, not just in eastern Canada, but spe- specifically in Quebec uh, with the, Pierre Trudeau and some of the cabinet ministers that he had and, of course, uh, Brian Mulroney uh, and his administrations as well. But that shifted. Your point's well taken. It, it seems to be a west right now as opposed to east. Uh, for the base of the Conservative Party, and they, uh, uh, judging by past, uh, I guess, uh, leadership races anyway, Mohammed, uh maybe not as flexible as as, uh, as delegates have been in the past right now. In other words, these are our ideals. Uh, if you don't fit into them, we don't want you running this party.
3: Yeah, and I think, you know, you're seeing some of the um, early positioning of some of the, the um, special interest groups, such as, you know, those who, who are um, – against abortion. So the pro-life movement, uh, who've already endorsed Les and Lewis, should she seek to run, uh, which is a bit of an interesting position as they're trying to encourage the candidate they want out there. And they didn't feel that Aaron O'Toole really was there for them and, and that kind of, that type of candidate. So I think you're seeing some of that. You'll see other special interest groups probably emerge that will pick specific candidates and will help mobilize those, those voters and where they are based, um, the shift in, you know, from the Brian Mulroney days to today, I mean, there, there's, you know, you could, you know, there is a movement of the reform party that emerged and then you had the Alliance party that sort of solidified how the struck the previous structure of the voting system and work for leadership races um, to ensure Quebec had sort of a, an equal footing, you know, seeing how the shifting landscape was taking place at that point in the early two thousands. So, you know, I, I think, the way that any candidate is going to see a path forward is is going to be predicated on, you know, where is their, uh, you know, where are their core interests lie. You know, are they able to rally the the sort of big base? You know, uh, the social conservatives are, are a big part of this um, party. Are they going to be able to pull out? Are there enough red Tories still left in this party for a, for a Tasha candidate to emerge victorious? Uh, you know we saw how difficult it was for Peter McKay to a degree, but he also had profile, so a lot more profile and a pedigree. So Tasha does have a little bit of a hill to climb on that in that sense. But then you look at other candidates that could potentially come out, uh, you know uh, Patrick Brown, the mayor of Brampton, is another candidate, you know mm-hmm. strong organizer and has a bit of that dabbling ability of uh, you know a little bit to the sort sort so conservative, a little bit to the red Tories, and you know he's saying on certain issues and and kind of kind of gets away with it. Um, so I think you're going to see, I, you know, I think you'll see a, a different mixed bag of candidates because, you know, given the context of where the Trudeau government is at, you know, you're in a third mandate, you know, public support for, uh, for a government always wanes in the in the, in the, in the long, you know, third, fourth mandate. So uh, there might be some interesting candidates that emerge that see an opportunity to not only win the leadership, but also potentially become prime minister.
0: How much of a factor is that? I mean, everybody gets into politics to win. We, we know that. Uh, but do they pick a leader that they think can win the next election, or they pick a leader that, that reflects uh, their their political ideals and their political ideology, for that matter? And I know some will say, well, one is the same as the other. They aren't necessarily all the time.
3: No, son, that's a great question. And this is where it comes down to, you know, uh, the general population of voters uh, is obviously much larger than any individual party's membership is. And so when, when people are looking at, they're looking at their candidate who connects with them. Um, but in the leadership review, it's, you know, you're looking at who who pushes the identity or who um, symbolizes the identity of the party that you want it to be. And the amount of people that vote in leadership races may Hover. it's below sometimes maybe a million people in total, if that, if you, if you have a really great voter turnout, right? And so the people that come out are the ones who are so passionate and have strong views and where that party uh, should go and who should the leader be. And then also, as you know, as you even mentioned in the comments, you know, there's a the backroom dealings, maybe another leadership candidate says, you know what, I'm going to support the, the leading candidate and all my support is going to go your way and all that stuff goes on. And, you know, that's a very, very small portion of the population that determines it. And they're not looking at, like, who the best candidate to, to win government. You know, I think there are some who think about that, who may be better. And I think those are probably more the politically savvy, you know, who've been involved in politics a long time. And so they start to, you know, position that. And that's in the messaging that you'll hear, like, we are the best, you know, candidate. I'm the best candidate to defeat Justin Trudeau or whatever. Um, that will come out. But I think... There is that base that is very much committed to, are you going to defend my views? Um, I feel like my views aren't reflected. That is where I think you will see, that's where the difference emerges between who is the best candidate to win form government and who is the best one to win leadership.
0: Well, and it's all speculative at this point, since nominations aren't actually officially open. Uh, even Mr. Polyev's uh, statement of the weekend is not actually registering because they're not taking registration uh, as of yet. So uh, lots to talk about here, and, and I'm sure there are going to be other names pop up. And we'll have those discussions as that happens, Muhammad, as always. Thanks so much for this. Really appreciate our conversation today. Thanks for having me. Take care. Mohammed Ali, senior consultant with Crestview Strategies, uh, speculating. And uh, as we say, uh, we'll, we've reached out to Tasha, and uh, we'll try to grab her on the program the next day or so and see just uh, where she's at uh, with this. And, and I'm sure there are others. And I, and I know that people of her ilk, of course, that, that have a high profile like that oftentimes get approached to consider public office. And, uh, well, some make the leap, and uh, some do quite well at it. Peter Ken, of course, a former uh, broadcaster for many, many years, of course, he, uh, became a member of the Harper government, Uh, after running successfully there. So who knows what's going to happen.
2: You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900
0: CHML. Protest in Ottawa uh, has brought to the fore here, uh, and part of the discussion and part of the debate here, of course, is information or misinformation, I guess, an awful lot of the time. Uh, And if you've seen uh, some of the uh, the video clips, uh, some of the television coverage on this over the last little while, and some of the radio coverage as uh, reporters have uh, tried to bring the, the news to the public, uh, there's a lot of vitriol directed at the media by the protesters, and uh, it's not new. It's This is something that's been going on for quite some time, but it seems to have ramped up uh, once again uh, with what's going on with some of the, uh, the the protests that are happening, not just in Ottawa, but of course, uh, well, now in Windsor, and of course, down at the uh, Alberta border. Uh, so what's happening here, and where is this coming from, and who's feeding the beast here uh, to, to create this sort of mistrust and vitriolic response that we're seeing to be getting uh, to try to delve into this, we're so pleased to welcome back to the program uh, Jeffrey Devorkin, who's a senior fellow at Massey College, former director of journalism at the University of Toronto at Scarborough and author of a book called Trusting the News in a Digital Age. Uh, Jeffrey, always a pleasure to have you on the program. Thank you so much for the time today.
2: Oh, It's my pleasure, Bill.
0: Let me ask you, from what you have seen over the last little while, because uh, we've talked about the uh, the attitude of some groups toward what they call mainstream media. I've never quite sure exactly where that phrase uh, developed or what they even mean by that. But, I mean, that that seems to be the grouping that they seem to want to lean on right now. Uh, is, is their vitriol getting worse and, and more heated?
2: Uh, it seems to be. I mean, it's this is a very uh, treacherous, should I say, time for us as a culture, as a society, and as a as a group of journalists and journalistic teachers, I guess, um, there the, what's happened is is that the disinformation that's been spread by the internet um, has become so powerful now. And part of it is because uh, the, the one of the values of the internet is this kind of democracy, this empowerment,, uh, this kind of populism of information, which says that, uh, somebody's opinion is as valuable as anybody else's, including experts and doctors and and uh, and other in- people who are part of established institutions. This is a kind of a a revolution of sorts, uh, going against the establishment of uh, media and government and churches and universities. It's that one's opinion is as valuable or even more valuable than anybody else's. And so what that has done is that it has undercut the ability of the media to try to present news in a contextual form. Um, And journalists out there on the streets trying to do the story are really coming under terrible pressure, even dangers right now. This is a, I don't think any of us have ever seen a time uh, like this it reminds me a little bit of the october crisis in quebec in in 1970 where journalists tried to tell the story of what was going on the government of the day of pierre trudeau uh, invoked the war measures act uh, i think for some good reasons uh, a number of journalists were arrested and held without charge it was at that time, considered by some to be an overreaction. But there, we're now hearing calls for the government, the, the Justin Trudeau government, to do what uh, his father did and invoke the War Measures Act to kind of bring all this under control. Journalists are caught in the middle, once again, uh, trying to report the story fairly, being attacked by uh, in some instances, uh, people in the trucker movement um, and journalists are being attacked for trying to report the story, being accused of false news, fake news, uh, being part of a pro-government conspiracy against the truckers. It's, it's kind of mad out there right now, and, and I don't see a, an easy way to resolve this the calls for a return to some kind of authoritarianism seem to be growing.
0: When was the pivot here, though? There was a time... And I'm not hearkening back to the good old days, but I mean, uh, when our, we got our information sources from various forms of media, whether it was print, uh, electronic, whatever the case might be. But we, uh, what, what usually helped us to determine the level of credibility uh, was, as you say, the bona fides of the individual that was was giving us the the, the, the information. You know, the, somebody who went to journalism school, somebody who was a reporter for 25 years, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, now, as you say, anybody that's got a Twitter account all of a sudden... Is a, is a reporter and, uh, and fully, you know, they, they feel as if they have the same amount of credibility or in some cases even more. Uh, was it the advent of social media that changed people's attitudes like that?
2: I think it was. I um, have to remember that going back only to the, um, uh, to, to the late 90s, the early 2000s, or even to the mid-2000s, there was no such thing as Twitter or Facebook. Mm-hmm. Um, there was a, this thing called email, which was seen to be kind of neat um, and allowed for us to communicate uh, more or less one-to-one and then sort of one-to-many. But this was the in the Obama years. That's when the internet really took off and changed the way news organizations Uh, were able to communicate, uh, gather, and distribute information, it became quite a different world. And at the same time, news organizations started to lose their traditional methods of economic support. Uh, as, As advertisers fled to the internet, instead of going to broadcasters or want ads in the newspaper, they disappeared. And so as a result the spreading of information became, there was no more, the role of the media as gatekeeper started to diminish and in fact disappeared. And in its place was this proliferation of uh, independent voices that were able to spread some proper information, but also some misinformation, and then you had a number of people who decided to uh, to spread lies, disinformation, and that became the challenge for all of us to try to separate the wheat from the chaff and to try to determine what constitutes reliable information and what does not, and we're still trying to figure that out.
0: And therein lies part of the problem, of course, because they we're inundated with information from all different sources. Uh, including, as you mentioned, social media. And, and I, I, the credibility issue is something that always bothers me. And that's not to suggest that I think everybody on social media is, is, has no credibility. Some have very thoughtful opinions on things. But I, I can remember back in my old days, Jeffrey, when I was uh, learning this craft, uh, a wise old broadcaster and journalist said, look at it. Well, the, the, the phrase was, if in doubt, leave it out. In other words, if you can't verify the story, don't run the story. Uh, it's better, as he said, it's better to be right than to be first. Uh, that's not apply- applicable anymore. It's get it out there. Uh, you know, I just saw a tweet from one of the quote-unquote organizers of this protest in up in Ottawa earlier this morning uh, that said that half of the Ottawa police services have resigned. Uh, well, that's, that's not true. But it was out there, and and I know, you know, I'm sure he willingly put it out there to, to spread this misinformation, which emboldens the people that he's out there with, I suppose. But now, all of a sudden, you know, the, you're into a deniability thing. We know that's not the case. You're playing defense as opposed to disseminating information right now, and it's it's got to be confusing for the general public.
2: Well, oh, I think it, I think it's very confusing for the general public. It's also confusing for uh, media organizations who have to stop doing what they're doing to suddenly chase these rumors and figure out if there's anything to them. And uh, it becomes much more difficult for any organization, any media organization to say at nine o'clock in the morning, okay, here's our plan for the day. And then 10 minutes later, it all it all goes to hell in a handcart uh, because somebody has put something out on Twitter and we all have to start chasing it. So I think that what we're seeing now is a kind of a, a kind of an explosion of facts and factoids and semi-facts and, and outright lies. And that means that we need to get back to, in my opinion, we need to get back to the idea that journalism is a labor-intensive activity. It can't be done with algorithms or hoping that you you put something out on the air and if it's wrong, we'll correct it on the website uh, 20 minutes later when, in fact, it's already gone out there and has done damage. How do we get media organizations to understand that they need to have human beings running the show, not just have algorithms doing it and, and perpetuating human error?
0: The other element to this, too, is... <laughs> is as you say when you're looking at at where this information is coming from and who's who's spreading this information uh and the credibility issue is a part of this but when did we get into the the, the, this mindset that so many people seem to perpetuate these days now jeffrey that i don't just disagree with you i think you're an idiot you're wrong for even having that opinion i mean you know we've had some vicious debates in, in you know political history of you name it over the years. And, and I'm not going to be so trite as to say sometimes we just agree to disagree. They get pretty heat, heated, and, and we understand that. But now hate has come into it right now. If you don't agree with me, you're not just wrong. You're, you know, well, fill in your own expletive here. Well, and you're, you're, if you're, me, not, that's, ju- that's you're not just wrong.
2: You're, you're not just wrong. You're evil. And I think yeah. that that becomes part of the problem. Here's one approach that is being tried, I think, by the European Union, they're looking at ways in which algorithms can be used to, to moderate, to oversee um, speech that is either incorrect or poisonous or damaging. Now, we in North America uh, kind of are in love with the idea of free speech and for good reason. we It's part of who we are, it's part of our culture. Uh, people have died on the principles of free speech the Europeans are, have another approach to this. And they're saying, no, governments may be allowed to intervene and hold media organizations and distributors of false information to legal accountability. Now, this causes, you know, hives to break out among news editors. The idea that a government would con- could control what is said and shared and spread Uh, The Europeans are a little more sanguine, a little calmer about this. They have a different set of historical circumstances. My sense is is that the Canadian government is trying to figure out a way that online content can be regulated without being uh, suppressed. And this is going to be the big challenge for us as a culture, as journalists, as teachers, as broadcasters, to say... If we are actually legally responsible for the inadvertent dissemination of false news, and that we could be charged with doing so, this is might <laughs> it it might have the the effect of slowing things down. I think we need a little bit of slow news dissemination now, uh, because obviously, allowing any idea to get out there is is turning out to be quite dangerous as we're seeing with the truckers.
0: There's one name that uh, as we talk about this, uh, Jeffrey, that I have not mentioned, and and that was on purpose, but I will now. Uh, And that, of course, is Donald Trump. Uh, And a lot of people point to Trump and say, well, he's responsible for this. I don't think so. This started long before uh, Trump decided to walk down the escalator there and run for president those lows as many years ago. He certainly threw gasoline on the fire. I mean, you know, but 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 it was there, and the mindset was there before. And of course, he probably took it to a new level. I guess you know, with his idea of this fake news business—that anything that he disagrees with, or anything that put him in a bad light, was was a lie. It was fake news, and and God knows there were enough people, and even in the quote-unquote mainstream media that perpetuated that, uh, you know, the Rush Limbaugh's and the Sean Hannity's and people of that nature, because we're at the stage right now where people really aren't seeking information. I think you talked about this in the past with us. Uh, they're seeking a reaffirmation of their views, uh, and that, and and they will go to whatever, you know, website or, or whatever it is that that presents those views that they feel comfortable with. They don't want to hear the other side anymore.
2: That's exactly right and and it's what they call, what the sociologists call bias confirmation is that people will go to information that they think supports their own ideas. And that means, and, and we're all kind of guilty of this. I mean, I don't go to websites that are gonna raise my blood pressure particularly. Um, I like to go to those websites that I think conform to my own ideas of what constitutes reliable information. Maybe I should, maybe I should take a chance and go go somewhere else. But I think that this is part of the, part of the problem. But does this mean that there will be a government body that will say, "Okay, Dvorkin, you can go here, but you can't go there"? I mean, this it, <laughs> the implications are pretty unbelievable. But at the same time, to do nothing may be worse.
0: There's another problem here that uh, I think is a factor here. I wanted to get your read on it. I think a lot of people don't understand the difference between opinion and reporting. Uh, one is factual, what's supposed to be factual. The other is is, is conversation and, and opinions of those very same facts, or hopefully those same facts, too. Uh, I think people conflate that an awful lot of the time, and, and maybe some people in the media are guilty of, of actually uh, encouraging that sort of thing. Uh, because a lot of the stuff that people claim as their news source are not news sources at all. Uh, there are programs like this, which is an exchange of ideas. It's not necessarily uh, you know, reporting the facts. It's it's talking about things and getting opinions on things. And, and people, I think, too often think that's the same as reporting news, and it's not.
2: That's right. I mean, opinion is important. It's an important part of, of media and journalism. But opinion is about convincing somebody of a certain perspective or a side in an issue. Journalism is also about evidence-based reporting, which would then allow the public to make up their own mind. That's different. That's quite different than wanting someone to share your point of view. And I think that a lot of many media organizations, print, broadcast, and especially online, we'll, we can talk about that in a second, but print and broadcast um, have put strong opinion on their in their newspapers or on their websites. Uh, because it it generates eyeballs and and ears uh to follow their their traffic and i think that that becomes a part of the dilemma when journalism which in my opinion has been kind of hollowed out by the digital culture and makes news organizations want to do news more quickly and more cheaply of course and in so doing uh there it's easier to put someone uh, in a column than to uh, have a bureau set up in in Afghanistan, which is very expensive and very dangerous, when you could have someone writing a column and paying that person a couple hundred dollars to do it.
0: Well, and we've seen, and maybe that started with, uh, with uh, you know, Ted Turner and, and CNN way back when, uh, you know, the phrase breaking news, which is, you know, we just take as commonplace right now, uh, did you check the source? No. But, you know, so if I don't run this right now, the other guys are going to run that and they're going to scoop us on this. And I know that's always been an element to, to, to news gathering and news dissemination, uh, but it seems to have taken on, uh, you know, much larger proportions right now. And you're right. I think, you know, to use the point we used earlier here, uh, I think the desire to be first uh, supersedes the desire to be right an awful lot of the time. And uh, and I don't think people much care about that anymore as long as they get it first. That seems to be the the, the number one mantra.
2: Well, often it, often it is, but I sense that there is a kind of a return to uh, to sweet reason in a lot of news organizations, that they understand that simply putting an opinion out there um, can be okay and can be interesting and can generate advertising uh, revenue in, in a certain way, but it also has a downside. And I, I see more and more mainstream media understanding that. I think one of the difficulties increasingly, is the role of podcasting, where someone can set up their own little network of information or even disinformation, and get that out there. We're seeing this with uh, Joe Rogan right now yeah. um, at on Spotify. Um, and the reaction against that by a number of artists who say, we don't want to be, have our music shared on Spotify, if, if if Spotify is going to spread this inform- misinformation and disinformation from Joe Rogan. So there is a kind of a movement to say, look, we are, this is a culture that has to respect ideas and do it in a way that is respectful and to do it in a way that doesn't damage us. And so I think that there is a possibility of change here, both from inside the media, but also I think the, the the hot breath of government on the on the necks of uh, media executives will force everyone to say we got to do a better job at this.
0: Hope so. We have to leave it there for now. We're just about out of time. But as always, Jeffrey, thank you so much for this. Great to have you on the program again today. My pleasure. Take care, Jeffrey DeVarkin, of course, senior fellow at Massey College and a former director.